Well, folks, let's get right to it. Today we are in the last chapter of Peter's second letter, and therefore his written contribution to the Scriptures. And on top of that, we're about to complete a series I'm not sure you knew that we were in, but I knew that we were in. I call it the Petrine Trilogy. That is, the three letters of Peter. And these are three books of the Bible, First and Second Peter, and I'm sure you're wondering, okay, well, where's Third Peter? Well, it's not Third Peter, it's Mark is the first gospel um, that we had a sermon series on last year. Now, Mark, a lot of scholars think, was informed by um, the eyewitness testimony and information of Peter, who in his first letter calls Mark like a son to him. And so we believe that the shape of that gospel um, is informed by the apostle himself. And while all three of these documents that we have in the Scriptures, Mark and First and Second Peter, while all three of them have their own unique style and content and audience, they all seem to have one unified message. That Jesus is the Christ. And because that's true, that Jesus is the Christ, His promises are true. His promise that He will come again is true. And His command to repent and believe must be heard and obeyed. So this is the confession that we see in Mark's Gospel that comes from Peter himself, the linchpin of that book. Who do people say that I am, Jesus says, not just to Mark, but to us as readers of Scripture? Well, you are the Christ. That's the confession. That's the idea. And it's that good word that's the hope of the church in exile in 1 Peter. And in 2 Peter, the document we've been in for these past few weeks, that is a word of warning. It's terror to an evil-doing world that Jesus is the Christ. And so they must reckon with that. It's a truth that must be believed. And it's a reality that will not be ignored. Jesus is the Christ. And so, dear friends, in a world that is overrun with bad news, in a time in which a pandemic is resurging in this country, we live in an unstable economy. There continues to be socio-political turmoil in a world that is trapped under the power of the devil and death. Will you hear this announcement of good news? That Jesus is the Christ. Will you remember the Word that Peter tells us was spoken by the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the new. A word of water and fire, a word of judgment and salvation, a word of sin, and a word of grace. But before we get into that word, let's remind ourselves of where we're coming from as a church. Last week in Peter's letter, he concluded a month-long scathing Rebuke of false teachers. I didn't think we'd ever get out of that section. It was agonizing for me to go through week in and week out. And maybe for you to hear. I don't know. 
He's been warning us about these people though for weeks. These false teachers that existed back in ancient Israel and are here with us in modern day. These teachers that have a veneer of religiosity. In our case, a veneer of Christianity. But you can tell they're false by some of the things they do and some of the things they believe and some of the things they say. First, you can tell they're false, Peter told us, because they love to divide the church. There's no grace. There's no forgiveness. It's us versus them mentality. That's the first mark, Peter tells us, that you can see in a false teacher is a divisive spirit. Secondly, they love to deceive people. They love to deceive themselves with the false promises, with the allure of money and lust and power. All the things that our world values above even human beings. And finally, they love to deny that Jesus Christ will return in judgment on this world. Sadly, I know of a lot of people that claim to be Christians, and yet this point to them is completely metaphorical. Ah, the resurrection, the return, those are just nice ideas to help us be better people. Well, if that's true, then we have a lot of heartbreak facing us. Because all of our best days are behind us. And what awaits us in the future is simply death and destruction. And maybe that's, you know, hey, maybe that's okay for us. But then we think about all the evil in this world, all the injustice, all the violence, all the terror in this world. And we think that if God doesn't respond to that, what kind of good news is that? What kind of Christianity is that? And that's exactly Peter's point. What these people say, what these people do, what these people believe, it's false teaching. It's not what the prophets, it's not what the apostles have taught us for these thousands of years. And so Peter who's normally a pastoral guy, has to roll up his sleeves and he has to bring out the pointy end of his shepherd's crook. And he has to go to war with these false teachers, wailing on them, comparing them to fallen angels, to rebellious nations and communities, to springs without water, to uh, dogs that return to their own vomit, that pigs that wallow in their own filth. He goes to such extremes to denounce these people and to expose them for who they really are because he's trying to keep us from being devoured by them and their lies. And we're so susceptible to it. We turn on a television screen, we check our phone, and anybody that looks well-dressed and well-manicured and says whatever crazy crackpot conspiracy they have that gets you to hate God's church and hate his image bearers that tricks us we've seen that in this nation we've seen that in the evangelical church in america we fall prey so easily to false teaching and so peter the pastor has to become peter the pugilist he puts his dukes up he fights these people he all but gets into fist fights with heretics and con men so that we won't be deceived by them to be dragged down into death and hell with them. But his letter ends mercifully, not by focusing on rebuking these schemers, but by encouraging the saints who may be weary, who may be tired, who are trying to be good parents in a world 
that's after their children's heart, that are trying to be good grandparents, that love and support their children and grandchildren, that are trying to be good spouses in a world that demands infidelity whenever you're unhappy or whenever chemistry goes flat or whatever. They're trying to be faithful church attenders who are people that come to give, not to take. Peter is trying to keep us from turning into those schemers and scoffers and keep us as saints. To just, even if it's by the skin of our teeth, to get across the finish line of life as faithful saints. So look with me in verse 1 this morning. You can tell the mood is shifting from what we've been reading in the Scriptures so far. Because Peter starts this section with dear friends. Oh, what a welcome word that is to hear after he's been calling people dirty, filthy, low-down hogs for the past few weeks. Dear friends, or as some translations render, beloved. And it's a, it's a title that he'll use three more times in the closing of this chapter. Beloved. Dear friends. Beloved. Dear friends. Because Peter means it. He cares about his audience. Remember, he has written this to people scattered throughout Asia Minor and rural communities and some maybe city churches, some small churches like ours. People that feel as if they have no representation, no advocacy in society. They're only spiritual exiles. People writes that, Peter writes that to these people to say, you, even there, that feels overlooked and misunderstood, you are loved by me and by, more importantly, by Jesus Christ Himself. He writes that not only to the people of His lifetime, but by the providence of God. The people of our lifetime that come even these thousands of years later. And so he says in verse 1, he's written two letters to this audience with this goal in mind to stir up sincere understanding by way of reminder. So what is it that we're supposed to remember? What is it that we're supposed to understand? Verse 2, the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord Jesus, our Lord and Savior Jesus given through the apostles. So Peter mentions these two groups again. He did it in chapter 1, and now he's mentioning them yet again. The Old Testament prophets and these New Testament apostles. Their collective witness, although they're from many different backgrounds, some of them wrote from Persia, and some of them wrote from Babylon, and some of them wrote from Assyria, and some of them wrote from Israel, and some of them wrote from Judah, some of them wrote from Egypt, some of them wrote from Greece, some of them wrote from Rome, some of them wrote from Asia Minor, with Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. They all have one common word, one thing to point us to across all these centuries, across all these personalities, across all these historical, political, social contexts, they have one word to tell us. Jesus. Even if they didn't know His name, they knew a Messiah was on the horizon. 
a Christ who is coming into the world to set all things right. And these groups have something else in common. They speak with authority. They speak with power. They speak with certainty, not because they themselves are smart, not because they themselves are important, not because they themselves are better than anybody else, but because God in His grace and mercy chooses to speak through weak prophets and apostles on His behalf to share His good news and His revealing Word with His people. And so as Christians, on this side of history, now that our biblical canon is closed, you know that word canon, right? Not canon, C-A-N-N-O-N. Nobody's blowing a gun here. But C-A-N-O-N, which is, a, I think, a, gosh, I should know this, either Latin or Greek word, meaning rule. This is the canon that we have, these 66 books of Scripture that attest to one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament and the New. The Elder Testament and the Latter Testament. God speaks to us through His prophets and apostles today, although they're long dead. Because His Spirit that we just prayed would come and illumine our minds, illumine this text, speaks through His Word. Read publicly, read in private, read over your children, remembered on your car ride to your frustrating job, prayed in family devotionals, stored up in your heart, the the Spirit of God moves through that Word of the prophets and the apostles of the Old and New Testament, all of which reveals to us the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's own perfect image for us in the flesh See, that's the wonderful thing about the doctrine of the Incarnation. The doctrine that God became a man in Jesus Christ because God, who is above and outside of time and space, who is a Spirit who no eye could see Him as He exists and comprehend, God accommodated Himself to us by in Jesus becoming a man. God's perfect image and likeness and representation. So that when we look on the words and the actions and the life and death and resurrection and ascension and return of Jesus, we see God's heart for His people and for this world. We see what humanity is supposed to look like. You want to know what it, looks, what it means to be a human being? What it's supposed to mean? You look to Jesus. That's right. Our lives then inwardly and outwardly are to be shaped by this Jesus. Who He is. What He's done and what He will do for us. Both the prophetic words and the apostolic words of the Scriptures point us to the one incarnate Word. Our Lord Jesus. And that's the Word we are supposed to remember. Peter says, remember the words of the prophet. Remember the words of the apostle. What word is that, Peter? The Word made flesh. For us. For you. Even this morning. Dear friends, that is what it means to be a Christian. It's to be a person that over a lifetime remembers this Word. 
And by remembering it, you trust it. And by trusting it, you obey it. And by obeying it, you remember it again. Rinse and repeat. So on and so forth. But remember, folks. Remember this. The Gospel isn't about anything you achieve. It's not about anything you are. The Gospel that we believe, the Jesus that we believe, the Word that we believe, is about what Jesus has already achieved for you. What Jesus already is for you. What Jesus is already doing in you. Or as the great reformer Martin Luther once said, the law says do this. Religion says do this. Be this. Achieve this. And you find that it's never done. That's what the law says. That's what religion says. But grace says, the Gospel says, believe in this because everything is already done. So what are we to believe, folks? What is it that Peter, for these three books of Scripture, through the witness of Mark, through the encouragement of 1 Peter, through the exhortation of 2 Peter, what is it that we've all been getting at for the past year and a half? What are we to believe in? We are to believe in Jesus. To believe that although humanity has in vain spent its whole history locked in a self-made prison of money and power and lust and control, that God the Son came to free us all and creation with us from the curse of sin and the slavery of death. To believe that He came through the chosen people of Israel after every patriarch and judge and king and priest and prophet failed. He Himself fulfilled all of those roles and more. To believe that He came into our world as a human being, fully God and yet fully man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the perfect, perfectly obedient Israelite, the Son of God and man. To believe that He ministered by the power of the Spirit, by the decree of the Father, of one will and volition with God Himself. To preach a message of God's coming kingdom for strangers and foreigners and exiles and outcasts. The foolishness of this world, that's who Jesus came for. All sinners redeemed through grace. To believe that He shows us the glory of God through His love and compassion through His wisdom and justice, by healing our diseases, by casting out our demons, by forgiving our sins, and even raising us from our death and demise. To believe that the powers of this world, all that we could offer back to God, whether secular or religious, is to assassinate and crucify the King of glory by hanging him up on a cross, lynching him as a common criminal to die by our unjust hands and our idolatrous hatred. But to believe on that cross is where God broke the only tool that sin and Satan ever had. 
the power of death. By using it against Him. By being our vicarious sacrifice, our holy ransom, our moral exemplar, and our conquering victor. To believe He descended into the realm of the dead, as Peter tells us, to declare His triumph over evil, past, present, and future. And on the third day, He rose from the tomb in a resurrected body to show God's vindication of this Christ. To believe that He commissioned all of us to go and be disciples ourselves to preach and make our own disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because this good news is for all people and all times everywhere. Everybody, everywhere. To believe He ascended into heaven, sat down at the Father's right hand, sent His Holy Spirit to guide and guard and to gather people from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, every color, every class, every creed, to be in a kingdom for us together. And where He intercedes for us to this day, when we can't pray for ourselves, He prays for us. To believe that He'll come again. To judge the living and the dead. Resurrecting those who believe, not that are good, not that are moral, not that are perfect, not that are sinless, but those who believe and trust to paradise. And raising those who trust only in themselves, who care only about their agenda, their influence, their money, their power, their pleasure, raising them to eternal perdition. While He, by the word of His mouth, recreates this whole universe, making all things finally and forever new in Him. Dear friends, that's what Peter would have us to believe. It's the only power and wisdom and authority and truth that we can live by in faith, hope, and love. But herein lies the danger. Peter in verse 3 tells us to beware of the scoffers and the cynics and the skeptics. The same people, by the way, that David and his first psalm wrote about. Those that may sit on thrones of power but scoff at the wisdom of the Lord. They'll blow away like the chaff they are eventually. But us, who have very little influence on this world, no political office, not a ton of money, we will be like those that sit by a stream of living water. And as we drink from it, we'll find that we'll never die. Our outward selves might waste away, but our inward man, woman, or child, is being renewed day in and day out. The people that Peter talks about in these last days only care about their own agendas. They care about their evil desires for wealth, lust, control, notoriety, whatever it may be. But Peter says in verse 4, What's so insidious about them is they don't keep that to themselves. See, the world produces better evangelists than Christians do sometimes. And you can see it every time you watch a commercial, 
every time you turn on cable news, every time you check your Facebook. Look at all the things. Look at, look at what I've done with my life. I can't, for goodness sakes, folks, I can't watch a YouTube video these days. Even if I'm watching something like the Bible Project without being, being inundated first by an ad where some, some schmoozy white 28-year-old man it was like, I made $7,000 last month and if you follow my routine, you can do it too. That exists because that's the world that people want. That's the people that they want to be. They don't care about loving. They don't care about giving. They don't care about worshiping. They care about getting, taking, stripping what they can. Taking advantage of people. Misleading people. People that get into these schemes, pyramid schemes, where they go after their own family to hit them up for money so they can be their own boss. So they can be their own person. That's the, the world is advertising that stuff to us all the time. This world is an evangelist for that kind of stuff. And they'll get us to doubt. They'll come into a church building like ours and say, ah, those fixtures are kind of dated. This carpet needs to be replaced. I'm, not, I'm just not digging the vibe here. You know, it's just not really my scene. But hey, I've got this really, I've got this great Instagram channel that I'm running. It's a lot of cool, young, smart, talented people. So, you know, it's just about loving yourself. It's just about doing what you want. It's just about being you. Don't care about loving anybody. Don't care about serving anybody. Don't care about the needs of the poor. Don't care about the widows and the orphans and the foreigner and the poor, like Zechariah tells us to care about. Care about yourself. Where is this second coming after all? Hasn't it been long enough? Where's the power of the resurrection? Where's this gospel of forgiveness I've heard so much about? Where is this Christian love? All I see when I walk into a church is death and suffering and self-righteous hypocrisy. The world is has its as it's always been. It's always been dog eat dog. It's always been mono e mono. It's always been survival of the fittest. It's always been every man, woman, and child for themselves. So why believe all these myths? Is that not the message we hear day in and day out? We hear that from every corner, every facet of our society. See, there are people out there who say they believe in God in some vague sense, but they deny the reality of Christ's resurrection. They deny the reality of His return. They don't live like the world has been upended. They live as if what Capitol Hill, what the President of the United States say, what the United Nations, what Wall Street dictates, they live as if those people are the ones in power ultimately. And not that Jesus has turned this world upside down and is building a kingdom of people that can't offer anything to God but faith. See, that's where God is going to center the power of His kingdom and the people that have none, that can contribute nothing to this world. And yet we Christians are so deceived. We live like Christ hasn't been raised. Let me tell you something. If you hear a sermon that's preached by me or anybody else that could be preached 
if Christ had not been raised from the dead and could be preached truthfully, that is not a worthwhile thing to hear. I can only say what I say if Christ has been raised from the dead. That's how you know it's a good sermon. Not if its illustrations are good. Not if it's under 35 minutes. We're getting there, folks. But if it can only be preached truthfully because Christ has been raised from the dead. And therefore, it's game over for any other king or any other Caesar or any other president or any other prime minister because Christ is risen. If we don't live like that's true, that He has been raised and so we will be raised in Him, if we don't live like He will come again to judge the living and the dead, I don't care what you say you are, you're not living life as a Christian. And there are tons of people that do this, folks. But they're, they're nice and they're, they're, they use a lot of religious language. Peter is begging you. I'm begging you. Don't be deceived by that flash. Don't do it. Peter says it like this. These people may seem impressive to us, but they deliberately overlook God's action in the world. They overlooked what He's done in the past. They overlook what He'll do in the future. They overlook His power, His sovereignty throughout history, and their vague religiosity allows them to justify their every selfish and self-righteous inclination, totally ignoring God's Word and His power. There's two words, or really one word, spoken twice in history that Peter wants us to focus on as we close out today. By the first word, God brings life from death. We've talked about this, feels like a thousand times in the past few Sundays. In Genesis 1, we read of a, of, of a world without order or form or purpose or anything. In this primordial state that our limited human minds can barely wrap itself around, that we can't physically picture at all. God speaks and divides water from water. And there is sky and there is sea. And because God's Spirit hovered over the waters of Genesis 1, whatever that possibly means, and a lot of us like to pretend like we know, and we don't, He shows us His power by taking something that was only able to produce death and made it a haven for life. See, that's how God works in this world. He takes what we can only do, which is destroy and to demolish and to decreate, and He creates life out of that. And in the ancient world, it's no wonder the ocean represented death because it was uncontrollable. It was an abyss that only produced storms and sea monsters and salt water. You couldn't even drink it. If you were, if you were dying of thirst and you had an ocean with you, you were going to die of thirst. None of this could be controlled or contained by humanity. It's a symbol of death, and yet God speaks and brings life from it. brings land, plants, animals, creatures, humanity. And because like verse 6 teaches, humanity in Genesis 6, we see, becomes so violent and corrupt, following after not God's wisdom, not God's Word, but their own wisdom and their own Word, God decreates the world. 
by allowing us to be the gods that we always wanted to be. We wanted to rule this world with our wisdom. He says, you go ahead. You do it. I'm going to step back. You be masters of your own fate. And guess what happens? When God relinquishes, this world comes crashing in on itself. The floodwaters He separated to create life, He lets them go back to the way they were, wiping out nearly everything in its path. When all we did, folks, when all we could contribute to this world was evil and thought, word, and deed, God let us have our way. And it nearly wiped us out. He showed His justice and His wisdom by allowing us to perish in a world that we first flooded by our own sin and death. Remember in Genesis, when humanity was at its worst, and all that we ever did, the Scriptures say, was violent and evil and against God and each other. He showed His justice toward that, but He also showed His mercy. God's love sealed Noah and his family in the ark, and that took the brunt of the storm, and they were delivered to a new life on the other side. Not by Noah's righteousness, but by God's grace. And in the same way, we who trust in Jesus are placed inside Him, are sealed by His Spirit. And Jesus takes the brunt of God's wrath, the brunt of God's justice against evil, while He delivers us to another world. We go into the waters of baptism, showing that God's judgment cleanses and, and sweeps away death, and we come up out of those waters showing that God has made us to be new beings that live on this other side. That's how God speaks both justice and mercy, both judgment and grace in a corrupt world. And scoffers, Peter says, overlook this. But while any of us may be able to overlook the past, we'll certainly not be able to look, overlook the future. Because Peter says in verse 7, by this same word, God speaks again. Not a different word. The same word. God speaks again, and the skies and the land will be refined. This time not by water. God promised He wasn't going to do that again. But this time by a flood of fire, of cosmic and apocalyptic apportions. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, folks, just like we don't know a lot of how Genesis 1 and 2 actually shook out, <laughs> we don't have a video camera footage of it, so I don't believe that we are going to really understand what Peter's talking about here until it happens. Peter, after all, is the only New Testament writer, the only one, you might be surprised, that talks about the remaking of the world by refining a fire. You can look in Paul, you can look in Luke, you can look in John, and any of their letters and Gospels and Apocalypses, and you don't hear them speak of it in this way. And so, what we know, what we can know about what this means, I think is rather limited. But the idea that Peter is getting at, one we'll unpack more in the coming week, is that this is the day of the Lord. That is an image that we've seen talked about throughout the Old Testament. And the day of the Lord is a decisive moment in which He makes a cleansing sweep of all of God's righteous action where it comes to bear in this world and God cleans out the filth 
that we've allowed to accumulate in society, in culture, whatever. Like He's done that in the past. Like the day of the Lord has come as a refining moment. That is coming in a final and total sense. Not in local ways. Not like in a Sodom and Gomorrah sense. Not like in a Syria and Babylon sense. Not like a Israel and Judah sense. But in a global, universal way, God will speak this word and this world will be refined by fire. Heaven and earth. Again, what we understand that to mean, we can't go much further than just confessing that to be true in some way. But just like God spoke to create life from water and to cleanse evil by water, so again He'll speak through Jesus who will recreate a new world for us by fire, burning away all the evil of this world. And so, dear friends, this is the divine ultimatum that lies before you today. When you exit those doors today and you return back to this dying world, which right now is engulfed in wildfires and flooded by monsoons, a world that is being smothered by cancer and coronavirus, a world of atomic bombs and automatic weapons, a world, as Zechariah told us, has no concern but to devour widows and orphans and foreigners and the poor, as we just read this past week in Zechariah, when you walk back out those doors and return to that world, will it be as a scoffer? Someone who believes it's every man for himself? Someone who puts all their hope and their money and their selfishness and whatever they can get in this lifetime, even when it means using people like their objects? for your basest whims and enslaved desires and denying God the whole way. You can walk out that door as a scoffer. You can do that. Or you walk out those doors and back to that world as freed and forgiven sinners. People who couldn't save themselves no matter what they did no matter how hard they tried, no, how, no matter how much they wanted to be loved and accepted, who could not generate that for themselves, but found one who could. Someone who puts all of their hope in Jesus, who is our God with and for us, who speaks a word to wash us by holy baptism and will speak the same word once again one day to resurrect us by this holy fire. What else is there to say, Maranatha, but repent? Turn away from reliance on self and believe the Gospel. Let's pray. Father, help us to remember that these sweet promises are ours in Christ Jesus. That although our world is inundated with scoffers and even our own sins that come back to haunt us, that the Word was made flesh for us to save us. So by Your Spirit, let us trust and obey. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask all these things. Amen.